talking that. Bitch, I'm gonna talk shit, try to clown on me. But it's guaranteed, homie, that you can't harm me. Cause I'm a juggernaut. Bitch, a juggernaut. Bitch, a juggernaut. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Danger Room, the X-Men Comics commentary podcast. I'm uh, Adam. I'm Jeremy. Little little slip of the tongue there. I forgot who I was. <laughs> we're here. We're ready to review the, uh, what did I say? J- January? No, July 1965 issue of X-Men. Issue number 12. Ironically, it was 12 cents. Yeah, this would mark the second full year of the X Men run. Can you imagine twelve cents for a comic book? I mean, what are they these days? Like two ninety nine, three fifty? Well, you know, every so often they have one for ten cents. Right, 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 right. And it feels nice. <laughs> this one features the almost indescribable menace of the Juggernaut, and the origin of Professor X. Yes, so. All right, so a little bit more history of my origins of collecting comic books, because I feel like this is kind of what this is all about. It's like us collecting comic books and how we came to be about the X-Men. One of the first comic books I ever read... Wait a minute. This is about collecting comic books? Well, I mean... This whole podcast has nothing to do with comic books. (laughs) Oh, wait. What? (laughs) What does this have to do about? What have I been reading all these for? One of the, the first issues that I ever read was issue... 215, 216, somewhere around there of the Uncanny X-Men, which featured uh, Dazzler taking on the Juggernaut one-on-one. Spoilers. Yeah. All right. So in 200 and... I'm sorry. In 202 issues from now, the Dazzler takes on the Juggernaut. And he fast became one of my favorite villains right behind... Now, I would say right in front of the Blob. He was hanging out with Black Tom Cassidy then, right? Not in issue 215, although Black Tom Cassidy was briefly mentioned in that issue. He plays more of a role in the in the hundreds issues, oh. not the 200s issue, but certainly was, was, was a uh, factor in those issues, yeah. So uh, w- once I started reading this issue, I was very excited to uh, learn the origins, maybe, or the first appearance of the Juggernaut, who, what, now is like a charter member of Excalibur? New Excalibur? There's something going on um, in the current Uncanny X-Men. Oh, okay. Here's, here's another spoiler warning where uh, something to do with the whole fear itself thing that Marvel's running right now. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This will date us. And uh, I, something has to do with Colossus and Juggernaut combining. Get out of here. Something like that. No, see, I, I, so I read like the Civil War storyline and then kind of stopped. So the whole fear itself, the schism and, and the last issue that's fast approaching, I, I am, I have no idea what's going on. Last I understood, um, Chris Claremont was writing a new Excalibur series and Juggernaut was one of the members of it. Hmm. That I may have been like that. two or three years ago, and, and oh. <laughs> I, I may have just made that up. Ha, who knows? But let's let's dive right into this issue here. Okay. Uh, we open with our exciting cover where we just see the back of the Juggernaut, which uh, is pretty much going to be a theme throughout this issue. <laughs> it's a pretty cool um, rendering, though. I mean, if we extrapolate what's going on with his back with what we know of the Juggernaut today, I mean, his costume and his stature really hasn't changed over, is it 50 years? 
Yeah. Close to 45, uh, 55 years. That's the cover of the issue. Uh, All the X-Men are definitely looking um, in peril. They're definitely upset. Just like issue three, the angel is still flying above the X-Men logo. Which is interesting because if you look at the Marvel box, all the other members are in there. Uh Uh-huh. Very interesting, yes. So as we open up the first panel of the X-Men here, we see all of the X-Men reacting very annoyed to the screeching of what can only be described as Cyberno or Cerebro or something. And I believe this is right where we left off in issue 11. Yes, exactly. This is continuing seconds after, although the the re-noise... The noise that is happening in the last issue was a beep beep, but they changed it to a much louder ree. It got a lot more intense. And yes. uh, as we left off in issue 11, it was only Cyclops and the Professor, and now it's all of the X-Men. So one can only extrapolate that the noise got much louder, and the other X-Men are like, what the hell's going on? And they all yeah. come busting into the office. And Exactly. It's at this point that, first of all, we learn that the artist is no longer Jack Kirby. Yep, we have Stupefying Story by Stan Lee and Spectacular Layouts by Jack Kirby, but Slam Bang Penciling by Alex Toth. And I we feel had sensational inking by Vince Coletta and the usual lettering by Sam Rosen. Uh, the the, oh, come on. Sam Rosen, again, being kind of shafted. Um, I feel that uh, Slam Bang Alex Toth adds a darker tone to this entire issue as a whole. But we also learned that uh, Cerebro... Now, I never really leapt to this conclusion, but apparently Cerebro was a secret from the rest of the X-Men. Yep. Uh, That is definitely a surprise to me as well. I thought that uh, everybody knew about it, but apparently not. You you would think that they're a team, and yes, Cyclops is the team leader, and maybe you would have more access to Cerebro than the rest of the people, but I really never imagined in the first 11 issues that Cerebro was like a secret from the rest of the X-Men, and they had no idea that this machine existed, but... Well, we were witness to Cyclops' discovering of Cerebro when Professor X first introduced him to it as team leader. So I guess, I think part of what clouds this for us is that we have this knowledge of the X-Men being utterly familiar with Cerebro. Yeah, So I don't think it was so much a secret as just... The professor never told them anything about it. Oh, the uh, professor just forgot. Hey, Cyclops, here's a machine, and, and uh, oh, oh, you other X-Men, yeah, d- I, did I not mention this mutant hunting device that I have? No, sorry about that. It must have been a shortcoming of mine. So, yeah, Cerebro is totally freaking out, and everybody's coming in, and the professor's like, this is the, this is the greatest danger that we could possibly make, uh, face. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what we can do. I have a question for you, though. Throughout okay. the entire history of the X-Men, the mansion, and Cerebro, we know Cerebro as a mutant-detecting machine. Okay. Is that is that incorrect, or is that a correct statement? I believe it is a correct statement, yes. So one would conclude that if Cerebro, the mutant hunting, not mutant hunting, mutant detecting machine were freaking out, it would be freaking out because of a very powerful mutant presence. Well, as we saw in the last issue, this is Cerebro running by name cards. So it seems (laughs) to detect very specific mutant uh, 
I don't know. What do you call those? Mutant vibes. <laughs> mutant vibes. Sure, I'll go with mutant vibes. Waveforms, presences, signatures, whatever you want to call them. But, but mutant nonetheless, right? It would seem that the professor in this instance set off a failsafe in <laughs> case somebody in particular ever came along and was detected. All right. But I mean, like if Dr. Strange were like blowing up New York City, we would not necessarily expect Cerebro to go off. Yes. Right. That, that's something that we would not expect. That would, they would be like flipping through the TV and be like, oh, my gosh, Dr. Strange has gone crazy. But Cerebro is not reporting it because Dr. Strange is not a mutant. Right. Exactly. All and right, in fact, right. Right. As, as, as we learn, it's not detecting a mutant. Oh, what is it detecting? Well, we'll save that for uh, for later. But All right, fine. So the X-Men are rapidly deployed to secure the perimeter or something. The professor has some sort of plan to uh, put up a several-tiered defense mechanism around the, uh, the mutant school, starting with the first layer of a giant ice shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, not wouldn't seem very effective. It would seem like it would uh, melt or something. But yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sure, nice shield. Cyclops is blasting a trench into the ground beyond, uh, just beyond the ice shield. Mm-hmm. And uh, Beast and Marvel Girl. Well, Beast lays down some some wire, um, <laughs> cable, and Marvel Girl puts down brush wigs and, and I don't, where is she getting all this brush? i don't know <laughs> this is a cyclops must be like chopping down trees in the background so marvel girl can pick up the leavenings and put it over okay, uh, okay. Beast's so they chop trench. off the leaves know. first gotcha it's definitely a team effort here um and then angel blasts well no angel picks up the logs and cyclops blasts perfect uh, holes into them and then angel drops grenades into them once again Showing us the level of control that Cyclops actually has over his power. I mean, really, what does this guy have to complain about? And then he starts blasting holes in the ground so that he can put the logs in them. And um, there's they, a yeah, there's a lot of accuracy going on here. <laughs> Angel and Cyclops question the nature of the grenades. Yeah. And so there you have it. You have your three-tiered defense system as prepared by the X-Men under... Professor X's uh, tutelage. And you wouldn't really think that, like, a super mutant team guided by the most powerful brain on the planet would rely to logs filled with grenades. Seems a little out of character. Well, uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah, yeah. One can only unexpect the unexpected or something of this that. definitely seems like a desperate time. All right, so there you go. Grenades and hollowed-out logs. And so the X-Men return to the Professor, and the Professor begins to tell a tale of deceit. Yes, he uh, he lets the X-Men know that it's his brother oh. who is attacking them. Dun-dun-dun! Your brother! Hence the origin. So now he goes back and tells them a story. Gas fills the area around his hand. <laughs> Let me As tell he... you a story. He's like a magician here. Let me tell you a story. He throws some smoke bombs on the ground and smoke fills his office. And we, we go flash forward onto a gravestone. Look, I got to tell you that, like, as far as a story goes, I think this is one of the best stories that we've seen of the 12 issues. 
Yeah, but there's it's definitely not... a um, there's definitely a, a tension here that is building up throughout the issue, which is something we have yet to see. We've got a good we narrative that builds up to something, but like, I gotta be honest. It's kind of drags as far as <laughs> us trying to tell you about it. But anyways, uh, yeah, so we're at a gravestone. Yes. And uh, I don't know. His, Professor Xavier's father was killed by an atomic blast in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Yes. And uh, Marco, Mr. Marco, does he have a first name? I don't even know. Dr. Marco. His first name is Dr. Oh, okay. Dr. <laughs> Marco. We call him D for short. D. Marco uh, has... Um, I guess apparently was the professor's father's friend or something, but he seduces Mrs. Xavier and says, hey, baby, I'll take care of you now. And the professor here, he just looks like, did you ever see um, the the bad son or whatever? With oh. Macaulay Culkin? Yeah, with Macaulay Culkin and the other guy from Terminator 2, the kid from Terminator 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, that Edward movie. Edward Furlong. Edward Furlong and Macaulay Culkin. So this guy looks like the Macaulay Culkin where he's just like, ooh, I'm going to do bad things. Because he's just, <laughs> he's constantly, he's got the cre- creepy blonde hair and then just those crazy eyes. And he's just staring at his mother and his stepfather with like, I'm going to throw a dead cat off of a bridge. You watch out. <laughs> he's angry. Somehow he knows that Marco... Uh, is not trustworthy and that he he escaped from the atomic blast but somehow his father didn't i suppose this could be the birth of his mutant power like he he is uh getting residual thought maybe from dr marco but not really understanding that he's reading thoughts because somehow he knows that um dr marco could maybe have saved the professor's father but opted not to but anyways exactly exactly and as we as we see um once professor or dr dr marco convinces uh xavier's what is xavier? charles charles first convinces sharon charles's <laughs> mother to marry him dr marco mm-hmm. dr marco still has not a first name but sharon xavier yes Yes, Sharon and Brian Xavier were Professor X's parents. Yes. Um, It is revealed on the the next page that even as a boy, my mutant brain let me sense secrets which were locked in the minds of others. So he has, like, a very simple understanding of the human brain. He hasn't hasn't become quite... He doesn't quite master, have his power mastered yet? Right. It seems like he's getting maybe essences of people's intentions because you see a shot here of, uh, at last, now I have everything I've always wanted and the professors, well, uh, Charles, can we call him Charlie? Because let's Charlie, call it young, Chuck. let's call it young Professor Charlie. So Charlie's in the background. He's like money, power. That's all he really cares about. So he's not really reading his mind, but he's getting like thought essences off of him so he kind of understands like what his motivations are is what i interpret out of the story anyway so he's he's very distrustful of uh, dr marco here oh and we learned that dr marco's first name is kurt on the in the next panel ah yes there kurt you go marco dr kurt marco so uh sharon breaks into the lab mm-hmm. um and professor or <laughs> dr marco Kurt is fuming. I told you never to come in here. And she says, well, you never really cared for me. I knew it all along. And he. But do we know what Dr. Kurt Marco is actually working on? I mean, he's got test tubes and bubbling fluids, but. No, apparently he's just working on um, 
whatever whatever he was working on before. Apparently, all he wanted was the space, the money, the ability to work on. He's a scientist, I assume. Just some random scientist that just needed some money in space. Okay, that's cool. But but he, but very annoyed that his his new wife is barging in on his work that he doesn't apparently tell her. So like when they go to bed, I don't think it, it's his new wife anymore. Well, okay, so his his well, I mean, it's his second wife because as we learn in future pages, he does have a son. But my point is is that every night he goes to bed with his wife, who's obviously I mean maybe in the same bed, hopefully in the same bed, or at least in the same room. If it's like a you know a, a um well. I just like lost. a 60s bed where they have two separate beds. Right, 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 right. Um, so it, when they go to bed, it's like maybe like, hey, Dr. Kurt Marco, my husband, what'd you do today at work? Does he not tell her? He's like, oh, oh, it was a rough day. Don't you worry about it, honey. You go to sleep now. And don't forget, don't disturb me when I'm in work. <laughs> I told you never to come in here. So anyways, he is very agitated. Oh, uh, yeah, he throws some paper off of the desk and mm-hmm. tells them, I don't care about Charles, and my, my, the son of my former marriage is coming home tomorrow, and that's where we meet Kane Marco, so is this like professor's stepbrother. Is this the first revelation of Kane Marco? Like, th- th- did uh, Sharon not know that there was a, another wife, another child? Uh, I'm going to assume that she did know. She, Charles she did know, or did. she she did or did not know. I think she did know. Okay, all right. Because you don't get involved with somebody and just have things like that happen. And right, generally, know. when you get into a relationship with uh, somebody that, that 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 you love or marry or whatever, you generally have conversations and things right. come up about the past. So, okay, this is something that probably wouldn't have been omitted. Although he does kind of say it in such a way that is like. Dun, 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 surprise, I have a son from a former marriage, and he's coming home tomorrow. Well, I think that's more intended for the audience. Okay, right. But I imagine that, oh, I think probably they both know, uh, Charles and Sharon. Well, I would hope so. But anyway, so uh, then the uh, Kane Marco drops in and immediately starts picking on Charles. And the butler. And the butler. And, well, first picks on the butler, then picks on Charles. Basically, he punches him in the face. Yeah, he, uh, look at my hand, I will show you a trick, and then, bam, he just hits him in the face mm-hmm. with a mm-hmm. thwack. It's kind of a reverse, like, hey, if your hand is bigger than your face, you're retarded, and you hold up your hand to your face, and then somebody punches it against your face. It's basically like if you did all of those motions for somebody else, is what is what Kane does to Charles there. Yeah, what a jerk. I know. It's, it's, and then we flash back to the X-Men, and the X-Men are like, dude, Professor, are you all right? And they see him in a new light, and they're like, I don't think you're as cool as you used to be. I think I want to go home. No, they don't actually say that. They actually are very <laughs> concerned about the Professor. Yep, and uh, the the Cerebro sound gets a little bit louder, and he's getting closer. They they run to the window, and there's huge noises outside. Crack, boom, rumble. And the building starts to shake. And um, randomly, a chandelier almost falls on Marvel Girl. Mm-hmm. That's a poorly luckily, placed chandelier, if you ask me. <laughs> I think Stan Lee was trying to fill a panel here. <laughs> That's what it seems like anyway. It serves no purpose to the story. Bobby, quick, form an ice shield over Gene, and then move, X-Men. <laughs> eh, a little action I there. see that falling chandelier, if, if not for Iceman. You know, she she's a telekinetic. She could have moved the damn chandelier herself. That's a good point. Like, well, Gene, the, look out. Yeah, but the professor's like, eh, she's just a chick. Bobby, Bobby, 
Ice shield, quick. No, that was that was uh, Cyclops that said that. Oh well, well, pff, even more. That's my girlfriend. God, Bobby, <laughs> get an ice shield over her. She don't know what she's doing. It was different in the '60s, right? It was okay to be sexist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I think you're right. We're trying to fill a page. So, anyways, uh, an ice shield falls, and we see a shadowy figure in the distance who looks very, very strong. Yes. Um very in uh hmm, what am i trying to say not much detail fleshed out in this character yet he just looks like a shadow which okay so that's cool and all that we're trying to like create some suspense and some mystery about what this kane marco my brother the juggernaut well we actually if we read the story if you tear the cover off of this comic book you don't know that he's called the juggernaut and you don't know what he's looking like so Mm -hmm. i think this panel would work a lot better if the cover had not been done the way it had been done with a rendering of his back and juggernaut spelled out in big letters that's an interesting point i wonder if uh so the surprise is ruined yeah i wonder how the the process worked Mm-hmm. I don't know if they thought of that. I mean, clearly they put his back on the cover because mm-hmm. they didn't want to reveal that. But. They didn't want to reveal his face or his front, but we still know he's a big, strong dude with like big metal armor yeah. and stuff. But you know, it's like one of those movies where they have like a like a like a surprise uh, uh, type ending or whatever, but they give it away in the trailer. That's kind of what I feel like is going on here. But anyways, so we got a shadowy figure, and we're, we're it's supposed to be sort of a mystery, but whatever. So the X Men are all kind of this is this is what I like about the new artist here. I can't remember his name, Toth. Um, this panel, the third panel here on page uh, seven. seven. Everybody, there's a lot of shadow going on here. Maybe that's the inker's job or, or whatever. But I like I like this panel a lot. It, it kind of shows like a lot of fear. Like it almost kind of reminds me of like one of those 70s or 80s horror films where all the kids are locked up into the, the cabin and they're like, oh my God, the killer's going to come and get us. And we all got to huddle together. But first you should go over there and see if that's safe. I don't know. That's kind of what it reminds me of. So the X-Men clearly creeped out, are ready to go fight, but the professor says, no, 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 wait, I got to keep telling you my story. Yeah. This is good. You're going to love the ending of this, so stick around here. There's a continuing theme throughout this issue. Mm -hmm. So we flash back into a dream sequence or a memory sequence of, I don't know, Kurt telling Kane, like, it's just the money, bro. (laughs) Well, basically, Kane is asking Kurt for some money now that he can afford it. Oh, right, right, right. And, uh, Kane accuses uh, Kurt of having killed Professor Xavier's father, this Charles' is, father, this Brian. Is, yeah, this is where you actually feel like, not a little, not sympathy, but you actually feel like maybe this Dr. Kurt Marco isn't as bad as the first few pages made him out to be because he's like, no, you can't have any money. Right. I did not kill the. I did not kill Brian Xavier. What are you insinuating? What's wrong with you? You're not my son. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't say that part. But, but anyways, I mean, you kind of get the idea that maybe like we were misled into the story. Maybe maybe Doctor Kurt uh, uh, Marco actually does care for Sharon Xavier and Professor Xavier, and 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 everybody's kind of like misreading this whole incident or situation. Well, you know, he's a complex character. He's exactly. not. Uh, He's not one-dimensional. He's, he's got some, you know, some good in him. Yeah. 
or some maybe some lack of evil. <laughs> I would say that Kane Marco is pretty one-dimensional, but I think Kurt Marco here is a very, very, very complex character. Much yeah. more complex than any other character so far that the uh, Stanley has written. But anyways. True. So Professor X overhears uh, Kane say that uh, Kurt killed Brian. I love tossing out all these names. <laughs> Kurt killed Brian while Sharon was watching, and Charles told Kane that... <laughs> How are these not soap operas? I mean, for, for God's sakes. <laughs> They're just soap operas in the guise of superhero comics. But anyways... Kurt tries to pass it all off, saying, nothing, it was all just a joke. He didn't realize what he was saying. And then Kane starts throwing test tubes around... And they explode, and everybody falls to the ground. Yeah, that's exactly what you want to do in a chemistry lab when you get mad, is just start grabbing random test tubes of fluid and throw them around. (laughs) But he does, and something explodes. And it knocks both of the kids unconscious. And this is where the three dimensions of this character, not three dimensions, but the multiple dimensions, the the lack of one dimensions of this character really come out. Right. Uh, Kurt saves the two of them. Uh, risking his own life and ultimately dying because of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, on his death, well, on his on his death floor, mm-hmm. it's not a death bed. Yeah. He says, uh, "Your father's death was an accident, Charles. I I could have saved him, but I didn't even try. I'm sorry." That's Beware respectable. I mean, come on, like. You know, you're in a you're in a situation where I don't know what, what like a laboratory blew up, or no, it was an atomic explosion, and and maybe I could have saved him, but I took the coward's way out and I saved myself. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, you know, I mean that that's 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 a, that's a human thing to do, you know, and that that really humanizes this character here, right? And then the next thing, beware of Cain when he finds out about your power. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of takes him back to the one dimensionalist, but whatever. Yeah, he's he flips back and forth. But then, I mean, he definitely married Sharon for her money and oh, her, yeah. her status, so he's always going to be somewhat awful. But even here, Charles himself was like, "Power? What? What are you talking about? Power? I don't understand." He doesn't, know yet. He doesn't mm-hmm. realize that he's been reading minds all along. Mm-hmm. And so we back to the present day, and um, there is a. There's a light shining through the window. He Very powerful light. The mysterious stepbrother has reached the second barrier, an electromagnetic force field, mm-hmm. and he's smashing it, I guess, which is causing it to shine light into the uh, room that they are watching the exterior from. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the, the deadly wire that Marvel Girl and Beast laid down. He snaps it or something like that. I, if you look at this panel, panel three on, on, on page uh, nine here, I mean, there's a lot of energy surrounding this shadowy figure. And again, I feel like this shadowy figure, this mysterious figure, would work a lot better if the cover had maybe not been drawn as detailed <laughs> as it was. But anyways, yeah, 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 it's a very powerful cable. The professor puts on some fancy glasses to enable him to see. <laughs> yes, he does. And uh, Cerebro has grown no louder. I'm not sure why he says that. Um, I guess to say that, you know, we're okay for now, and I can tell you more of my story. The threat's pretty awful, but it hasn't gotten any more awful. Okay, let me tell you some more about my past. Story time. (laughs) Everybody gather around. Let me tell you about my bro. 
So we uh, we fast forward into about high school and still look at the professor here on panel three of, of page 10. He still looks like that creepy kid that's throwing cats off the bypass. <laughs> Come on. He does not look. I don't know which one of those, if any of them is supposed to be Kane, but all of those other four boys look normal. And the professor, he looks like somebody you wouldn't want to trust. Yeah, I don't think any of these guys are Kane, but um, okay. you, you have a reason not to trust him. He cheats. He, he doesn't is know realizing it, his mutant. No, at this point, he does realize it. Well, he's slowly starting um, to realize. So the, he, he says, "I must be more careful. No one must ever suspect that I can read minds." Right. So he because he's 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 getting he's guessing um, test questions that the professor that the professor of his high school hasn't even asked or whatever. So I get the third panel, fourth panel here, where he's playing football and he's like, "Oh, I'm really good because I can anticipate everybody's moves." The mm-hmm. panel I don't get is the fifth panel where he's like. Oh, I'm so fast, but I can read people's minds. Like, one does not beget the other in this scenario. I I don't Let let me read this. Even at track, I had the advantage of knowing when an opposing runner was tiring or planning to make his last desperate spurt. Now, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But how does that help you? You you still need to be in uh, enough athletic... Uh, a training to be able to be like, okay, he's tiring. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna lay on some speed here so I can pass him. I don't know, whatever. And, oh, he's planning to make his last desperate spurt. Um, I guess I better make my last desperate spurt. <laughs> right. So First. it sounds like a couple of tired dudes trying to cross the, tire, uh, the finish line here. <laughs> but anyway, so that somehow the professor with his mental prowess is able to mentally think himself past each finish line for track. And at that point, he says, you know what? I, I think I'm pretty much done with this because people are starting to suspect some stuff. And that's when Kane walks in and he says, hey, man, you bald freak. You got another trophy? Oh, yeah, the professor Ooh, also makes re- me reveals here that uh, he lost his hair due to radiation from uh, his parents' exposure to a nuclear research center. Yeah, I guess that's probably an important presumably fact. Presumably what blew up. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just wonder why, like, they couldn't have made, like, one thing normal. Like, okay, so he's super powerful, he's got this great brain, and he had an accident at some point, and he lost the, the control of his legs. But why couldn't his baldness just be, like, male pattern baldness? Like, oh, man, my family's <laughs> cursed with this. We tried Rograin and all sorts of stuff. Don't work, man. Powerful, most powerful brain in the planet. Still can't grow hair. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> but, no, they have to make it some, like, atomic thing. So, yeah. Anyhow. Yep. Uh, Kane, Kane looks at his trophies and he's like, oh, grr, I'm grumpy. And he smashes his trophy case or something. Yeah, he's jealous, smashes the trophy case, trophy case. I guess he'd been a bully all of Professor X's life. So Charles just, uh, takes a, takes a punch at him, takes a swing, knocks him down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Kane gets furious, starts smashing up the trophies. But luckily the professor can read his mind as well. And is able to give him a karate chop to the back. Yeah, not only is he good at football, track, and reading minds, but also knows karate. Well, no normal foe has a chance against a mutant can read minds. The, true. He says. Especially one that knows karate. So anyways, he knocks him yeah. out with a karate. Like one of those old classic G.I. Joe karate chops to the back of the neck. You remember Judo those? chop! Boom! Oh, I'm unconscious. I don't know why. Just got hit in the back of the neck, but I'm unconscious. So then we flash forward to the future, or to the present, rather, with the X-Men surrounding Cerebro. 
And, yep. and uh, it's a quick one panel mm-hmm. uh, as Gene uh, inserts. Well, he did, he got what he deserved. Mm-hmm. And um, Professor X tries to convince us that this is a this story is really a tragedy. Mm-hmm. For, and, for both um, of them, really, not just Kane or the professor, but both of them. Yeah. And uh, so Bobby says something about how he doesn't understand why he's a danger to us now. And uh, the professor says, Bobby, shut up. I'm trying to tell my story. Hey, hey, kid, shut up. Let the the adults are speaking over here. So then we go back into the past where Kane is driving a car furiously. Now, I got to wonder why in the world, after all of this abuse and this punishment the professor has been at at the hands of Kane and this this just the nastiness of this guy, why is he in a convertible with him driving around mountain passes? <laughs> well, according to this panel, he was hoping to win his friendship. Okay. So I guess he's just, he's positive. He's an optimist. He makes bad decisions. <laughs> he's, he's not terribly good at reading the true intentions of his, his yeah, cousin. Right, right. He does, he, he, yes, he can read minds and he knows that he can read minds, yet he still decides to go on this journey, his death journey. So the cane, for whatever reason, is driving around this sports car and then it happened and he didn't well, see a detour. It turns out that his whole reason for driving the professor was that he was going to... He wanted the professor to beg him to stop and to cry. Right. And um, so he's driving like a maniac around all these mountainous curves. And then he didn't realize there was a detour and drives through it. Jump, jump. He jumps out of the car. It was too late for the professor. The car flips over a cliff. Can't get out going over. And um, that's where we assume that Professor Xavier lost his legs. And in fact, one of the X-Men assumes that too. But then he says, uh, Professor says, no, actually that happened at the hands of Lucifer. As you good, know. Because, yeah, we that was that was mentioned. Duh. <laughs> but um, not, not sure what the purpose of showing him crashing off of a ravine was then. There's no point to this panel whatsoever. But anyway, so we, we yeah, we're in the future again, and there's a big explosion, and a, I don't know what exactly is going on here, but there's a big flash in the window. It's impossible. It's incredible. It's inconceivable. And yet he broke through the force barrier. What the hell As is a force barrier? Um, I don't remember what the force barrier was. I don't know. It was the second tier. <laughs> okay. So, anyways, uh, there's there's a figure. He's getting more defined. He's less in the shadows, a little bit more defined. You can see kind of uh, you you can definitely see the outline of what what would be what we would know as the Juggernaut. And he's coming towards. Uh, there's a lot of red and, and lines and, and and action. It looks like a lot of action is happening in this panel and a a big sizzly cable. But he's walking towards those hollowed out wood beams of the grenades. Lord only knows what's going to happen next. Yep, he as he gets closer, he starts looking a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the grenades shoot out of the logs. Not sure how that and, happened, uh, but yeah, they shoot out of the logs. Yeah, I don't know. They must have had a spring system. Mm-hmm. Well, he trips over the wire, and that causes the grenades to pop up. That, sure. I don't know. I don't know how that works. We didn't. There was one panel that they didn't include of the them setting the springs. It was too tedious to draw. So like, we'll just insinuate this. But they pop up into the air. They apparently blow up in front 
and above the juggernaut and do absolutely no damage whatsoever. They don't even appear yeah, to like pause him in his forward movement towards the mansion. They are sleeping gas, basically. Oh, okay. Well, he's not falling asleep. Nope. He staggers, though. He staggers a little, and that's when uh, Bobby, uh, Iceman, whips up a little ice shield across the window to make sure that, uh, you know, since he couldn't get through the ice barrier in the first place, he certainly won't get through this ice barrier, but, you know, he gets the old college try. He puts it up to the window so that the sleeping gas doesn't get into the room. Oh, okay. That's pretty smart. So we move on to uh, yeah, everybody's kind of hunkering down for this this attack, and the professor says, "That's it. I owe it to you to tell you what you faced. You don't understand, but this is what got, what happened. We were in Asia, and we were in the war. Was there a war the, during the Korean War? We were in Asia in the Korean War, and that's when we found a cave." Yep, apparently uh, the they were being shelled, and Kane runs away um, into a cave. The professor follows him, shouting, that's a court-martial, don't do that. And uh, apparently right in this cave is, the cave ends up being the Lost Temple of Sitarak. Now, that's, this brings up an interesting question. Uh, did you ever play Marvel Super Heroes? It was a uh, um, role-playing game, like kind of like Dungeons & Dragons a little bit. With the multi-sided die and everything, uh, I I remember reading the rules and stuff like that. Okay. I don't know if I ever played. I so think I did. I made, a, made I, a character or something. I played extensively. I, think I made a character with you. That could be. I was very into the yeah, game I, before before I met you, and I may have brought like the whole game set, whatever. But anyways, so like one of the you know so like Dungeons and Dragons had the monster manuals, and you would read the monster like the Beholder, and you'd read all about the Beholder and blah blah blah, and it would have like background and statistics and all that sort of stuff. Well, same thing with the Marvel superheroes uh, game; they would have like all of the supervillains and superheroes, their backstory and what makes them tick, basically. And I gotta be honest, so I always pronounced. Uh, this as the lost temple of Sitorak. You said Sitorak, and I'm saying uh, I always pronounce it Sitorak, but it's got a double T there, so that kind of does make me think that it might be Sitorak. But anyways, I gotta these stories that these origins seem to have greater impact when they're condensed into like a paragraph, <laughs> because when you actually see like how it actually played out in the Marvel universe and these comic book pages, like I don't know what's going on here in panel four here of page fifteen. There's like some statue guy holding the I don't know what that is, but it's not what I imagined when I imagined Kane Marco going into that cave of Sitorak and getting the the gem. And the ruby and turning ultimately into the juggernaut. Anyways. So that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was wrong. <laughs> so he grabs the ruby and he uh, grows to immense power. And we talk about the crimson bands of Sidorak. Sitorak. The reason I call it Sidorak is because I think there's a Doctor Who alien called the Sidorax or something. Oh. And um, I sure that doesn't relate in any way whatsoever but that that's why i call it that well doctor who's around in the 60s wasn't it yeah maybe they're both based in some sort of uh historic Mm. ancient thing we should probably maybe maybe if we google the word sidorak we come up with like some sort of mythology 
Yeah. Hey, listeners, fans of the webpage, <laughs> why don't you tell us? Is Sidorak a thing or is it just a made up Stan Lee thing? All right. That was your plug. Or a made up Doctor Who thing. Ah. So, anyways, uh, the 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 uh, so he grabs the uh, bands of Satora Sidorak. I'm I'm going back to my pronunciation. Whatever, Sitorak. whatever. It's cool. It's all cool, man. You're confusing me. It's <laughs> he grabs the bands. The, the bands cause him to grow up into this or to grow up to grow <laughs> into this giant uh, juggernaut, which a human juggernaut, which uh, causes the mountain uh, to fall down. Professor X runs out and thinks. This is kind of confusing because apparently Professor X knows what's happening to him, but doesn't like we the audience don't. So he basically says, um, if he should ever this this will trap him in the mountain. It'll take him years to get out, even if it doesn't kill him. Now, how does he know that? Now, but if he should ever break free, I can think of no power on Earth capable of stopping him. How does he know that? And he'll come find me. The crimson bands of Sidorak will lead him to me, no matter where I hide. Why is that? He seems to have a lot of inside knowledge about these bands of Sidorak. It's almost like the professor's origin is closely tied into the bands of Sidorak. It's so like maybe he, this isn't the real origin of Professor X. This it, is part two. It's like he put the bands of Sidorak in that mountain to set the juggernaut up, you know? I have yeah, no idea why this exists like this. I mean, so what we're trying to infer here, so the Korean War was in the, I have to imagine, the 50s? was in the mm-hmm. 40s because that's World War II and then this comic book is in the 60s so I'm I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that the Korean War is in the 50s. I'm going to say 1955 and listeners if I'm wrong <laughs> feel free to lambaste me but whatever. So what we're trying to infer here because he says that uh, as soon as he breaks free the bands of Sidorak will Sitorak will lead him back to me. So he's been stuck in this mountain for like 10 years. Yeah, I guess so. Mm. So the the bands of Satorak mean you don't have to eat food or drink water. <laughs> or as the juggernaut, he can eat rocks. Oh, well, yeah, okay, he's powerful, <laughs> sure. Okay, so anyways, uh, we go back to the X-Men. They're kind of looking out of uh, Iceman's little ice window there, and they see him in the distance. He's rising. Yep, and he's... Just as the he, professor feared he would. They thought the sleeping gas kind of worked but it didn't so he starts smashing stuff he's getting closer and um suddenly the professor and scott simultaneously realize wait we've got steel doors go 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 set those somebody go press the steel door (laughs) button and instead of one person running out all of them run out actually the only person here that's missing is gene gray she had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I got a tinkle, boys. <laughs> Why don't you go hit that button? Uh, I got to, yeah, I'll get a powder my nose. So Beast and Angel and uh, Bobby take off. And they're all running down the hallway together. They're, they start competing with each other. I'm faster. No, I'm faster. And then in panel three, they all run into each other. <laughs> it's, you know, it's as if they have not been listening to the professor's story about how awful and bad and strong this juggernaut guy is. I mean, this is how bad the professor is at storytelling. I thought this was <laughs> a decent story, but apparently his telling of it is so dry. Everybody's just like, no, I'll go first. No, no, I'll do it. No, no, no. You, you guys stay. I'll do it. Did the, did, what, what, did the professor say? I don't know. Let's go. Just go. Let's go. Let's go. Then they all <laughs> crash into each other. And, uh, and that's why Jean Grey's in the bathroom. She's just like, boys, this is ridiculous. Have you not been listening to the guy? This is serious. Actually, Jean Grey is probably like in a room like, 
gathering up her collectibles and stuff like oh my god we're all gonna die <laughs> but the beast basically punches everybody away from him and hits the steel door button with his toe although one panel he punches them away and the next panel they're back on top of him yeah yeah couple of inconsistencies with the drawing there. So the, and then the next three panels are pretty unnecessary as uh, yeah. the beast smashes into the wall to test it. I don't know why it takes three pounds for a steel door to go up, but it does. <laughs> and yes, you're right. The beast does repel off of that. Now, Jean is done powdering herself or protecting her valuables or whatever she was doing. And her and Cyclops are racing down the hallway with a professor. They go to the front door where they know he will come in. Mm-hmm. They make more mention of the Temple of Sitorak. Yep. And that's when there's some boring conversation, and all of a sudden the door starts bending. Oh, well, this, this is important. They do realize that the, uh, the professor realizes that the power of Sitorak um, gives him juggernaut a mystic mental defense so the professor cannot read his mind or mind wipe him yeah i'm actually kind of curious about that because in issue 215 you know what right, eventually they convert it over to it, it being his helmet right i'm gonna save that till the end of the issue so anyways okay. we, we see lots of scrack and punching and crashing of the steel door there and finally the steel collapses inward and Iceman throws up a little shield to protect everybody from steel but it doesn't matter because a giant juggernaut fist punches through the ice and the X-Men go charging after them in a uh, interesting panel where they manage to fit all five of them into one panel I it's awkwardly drawn but I kind of like this panel yeah I feel the same way actually yeah. So, anyways, yeah, they're all, they're all. It's up to us, man. We're the last line of defense, and so they all kind of. Well, not they all. Actually, it's just Cyclops. Yeah, basically, who Cyclops says, "Wait, let me try first. <laughs> and then he uses his full blast, mm-hmm. um, which the Juggernaut um, blocks with his hands. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, so they decide it's time for us to rush him together now, and he knocks them all aside. The Juggernaut uh, stretches out his arms, and all the X-Men go flying backward. Yep. The Professor is still trying to lash out with all of his mental power, but it doesn't matter because the Juggernaut's like, hey, bro, this is the last time we're going to meet. It's over. And it's true. <laughs> Kane Marco has become a human Juggernaut. Now dun, I f- dun, dun. that that's the end of the issue, and I feel like Stanley felt like that was going to be like mm, the 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 punctuate the powerful punctuation of the issue. But really, I mean, he's become the powerful Juggernaut. All that really means is like he's become like a powerful, strong dude. Yeah, it's like it's not like oh, then it's true. My brother is no longer my brother. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Well, anyways, now I'm just nitpicking. Well, but at, yeah, at this point, we don't really know what the Juggernaut's powers are, other than strength. The, the, yeah, their strength. He can get through things. He's unstoppable, and basically, they're worth fearing. I guess. So, in the uh, future issues, in the issue 215 that I'm referring to, uh, it, it was one of the first issues with uh, Psylocke, uh, Longshot, Dazzler, Rogue, and Wolverine 
kind of forming a new team, and Juggernaut is one of their first opponents. And underneath this kind of dome helmet, he also has kind of a, a metal skull cap, and the metal skull cap has been... Uh, magically enchanted to repel um, mental penetration or whatever you want to call it. So, eh, whatever. Yeah, it's it's um, essentially the same thing. It is. You're right. Now I'm just nitpicking, but... <laughs> So anyways, yeah, uh, I, I, so we make fun of this issue, and there's a lot of exposition, but I actually got to admit that I, I really enjoy this issue because uh, it, it is a lot of um, storytelling. It's a lot less like, mm, we're going to steal the money from the vault, and the X-Men have got to come in and, and, and stop the evil mutants from stealing the money from the vault, and once they do that, oh, the evil people get away you know it's it's it kind of this issue feels to me like it kind of breaks away from tradition yeah it seems like this issue is a lot more thought out than previous issues like they're really trying to put something together and stanley's really starting to think about his storytelling and and focusing on uh not just what the story is but how he's going to tell the story and how he's going to build up to these moments It's, it's better i feel like and I wish I could go back in time and have a conversation with Stanley and be like, hey, man, why did you do this? But I feel like it's he decided or maybe the company decided like, OK, you're taking the easy way out every time you have Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So you got to get rid of them. And once you get rid of them, now you have to challenge yourself to come up with compelling villains and compelling stories each and every month. And uh I I feel like that was a compelling issue. Like if if that was the first X Men comic book I had ever read, I'd be like, oh my god, I have to see what happens next. I <laughs> I am a fan. I am hooked. I need to find out. This Professor X guy seems pretty pretty de- uh, 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 deep. I don't know what's going on with this Juggernaut guy, but apparently there's going to be a huge fight next time, and I I want to be there for that. Well, as somebody who has never read these issues but is familiar with the Juggernaut and late, later issues, I am very curious to see how this all gets resolved and whether or not the juggernaut returns to the status that he has today or whether he is much more powerful in the next issue. Cause they sure make him sound like he is far more powerful than the juggernaut we know is. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, based on what you know of the juggernaut, do you, do you feel like this is a, uh, a welcome introduction to a character that you have, um, that that you have expectations of, or do you feel let down? Uh, this was a very good issue. I mean, right? I I don't think you can feel feel let down. Um, doesn't matter really who the the character that is revealed in the end is. It was just a, it was just a well built up tense issue, and so I think it's a good introduction for the Juggernaut. And it would be a good introduction for any character, even if they didn't ever reuse him. But so I guess yeah. my point is is like. When I talk about the Blob, like I'm, I'm talking about like uh, the Blob from the '80s and the '90s when he was fighting X Factor and X Men, and he was just kind of like this perennial villain that was like there with Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or Freedom Force or whoever. Uh, but his introduction into the Marvel canon, in my opinion, is like, ugh, I really could have done <laughs> without that. Inter- oh, so he was a circus freak. All right, but this, well, this is, is like. One of the- this is one of the cool things about like these early 60s comics is that 
a lot of these characters weren't really fleshed out and as the years went by they would return and they would become more fleshed out and that's it's just kind of interesting it's not just interesting to see what their origins are because they may not live up to our expectations of origins but it's interesting to see where the genesis of these characters came from sure so all in all, I mean, as, as goofy as the issue may have been written or some of the inconsistencies that were going on there, I really like this issue. I think this is probably the best issue uh, that we have uh, read and reviewed yet. Yes. Um, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I'd have to think about it, but I definitely, I definitely dug this issue. All right, then. So, uh, if you are on the internet or your phone or your Android or iPhone or whatever, you should pop on to www.redcatproductions.com forward slash danger room and check out all of the other episodes that we've done. Leave a comment or send an email uh, at what danger room at redcatproductions.com or what visit us on our facebook page i just go to that search bar and type in danger room we're right there for god's sakes kitty pride the other day she liked our page that's yeah, that's crazy that, that's good praise right there you got an actual <laughs> x-men who likes our podcast so hey if the x-men are listening to it then why shouldn't you be exactly so let us know that you're of course, on- if you're not listening to it then this message is going to no one so Never mind. <laughs> well, let us know that you're out there. And, uh, yeah, if you're not listening, let us know. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> you're ruining my, my <laughs> promo here. Sorry. All sorry. right. And uh, make sure to visit us at uh, our iTunes page and uh, leave, yes. a little, leave a little bit of feedback there. Yeah, comments and like positive comments on uh, the iTunes will let people know that we're a good show. and Or even negative comments, really. Yeah, but, you know, we prefer positive ones, yeah. to be honest. I mean, you know, if you're going to leave a negative one, don't leave one. Just email the negative ones to us, and we'll we'll we'll, yeah. we'll post them if we feel that they're appropriate. We'll, we'll, we'll re- re- read them on the show. and um, Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Especially if they're funny. Um, so, yeah, there you go. So join us uh, next week uh, when we take a look at what happens next with the juggernaut revisiting his brother. Ooh, I'm excited. I'm actually kind of excited, too, because I know what happens after that issue. It gets good. This is, we've kind of lived through the campy first few issues, and now we're getting to the good stuff. All right, all right. So, uh, yeah, it, it, until next time, man, this is uh, this is Jeremy and Adam saying the danger room is closed. Oh, I'm a juggernaut, beats a juggernaut, beats a juggernaut, beats a juggernaut. We out in talk shit, try to clear home, beat